0: Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 118 The British Capture Stockton and Lee. Last week, we followed the race across New Jersey as the British pushed Washington's Continentals across the state in a matter of weeks. The Continental Army could not mount a stand against the advancing British and Hessian forces, but at least tried to avoid capture. As the British swept across New Jersey, they swept up many soldiers and civilians who were considered traitors. Today, I want to take a look at two of those prisoners. Richard Stockton and Charles Lee. Richard Stockton was a New Jersey native. His Quaker family had lived in Princeton for generations. Richard attended the local College of New Jersey, later known as Princeton University, and when he was older became a trustee of the school. He took a break from practicing law in New Jersey to travel to Britain, where, among other things, he had an audience with the king, King George III to thank him on behalf of the College of New Jersey for his role in repealing the stamp tax. After Stockton's return to New Jersey, he served on the provincial council for the colony and as a judge. Most people label Stockton as a political moderate. Like most colonists, he was not crazy about Parliament's taxes, but at the same time was not exactly leading a charge toward revolution. New Jersey appointed him to serve at the Second Continental Congress. While there, he voted against independence. After it passed, though, he signed the document anyway. Quite a few delegates followed this pattern. Even though they had reservations about going for independence at that time, they thought that the unanimity of Congress was important. After independence, Stockton ran for the presidency of the new independent state of New Jersey. He lost to William Livingston by one vote and kept his position as a delegate to the Continental Congress. When the British invaded New Jersey, like most leading patriots, he packed up what valuables he could and abandoned the family home. As a signer of the Declaration, he was definitely a target. He already knew the story of fellow signer Francis Lewis of Long Island. British regulars had burned Lewis's house and imprisoned his wife. Instead of heading to Pennsylvania, though, Stockton moved to a friend's home in Monmouth County. This was behind enemy lines, but it was an out-of-the-way country estate. I guess Stockton thought no one would come looking for him there. If so, he was wrong. The British had hoped that a show of strength in the area would encourage many locals who still wanted to be loyal to the king to join the cause. Although the numbers of Loyalists were not as large as Howe had hoped, a great many colonists did volunteer to support the regulars. One such regiment of Tory New Jersey volunteers got a tip about Stockton's location. They sent a force to arrest him. Most accounts of the arrest indicate that they treated him very harshly, forcing him to walk all the way to the British camp at Amboy, which is modern day Perth Amboy, through rivers and without proper winter clothing. Stockton arrived in Amboy in terrible condition. There, officials put him in chains and threw him in jail. He spent about a month there, enduring hardships similar to captured enlisted soldiers. A given Stockton’s position as a gentleman, many patriot leaders were aghast at his treatment. The Continental Congress demanded investigations and wanted to protest the treatment if found to be true. But by the time these complaints reached the British, Stockton was already on his way home. The terms of his release are controversial to this day, without clear and convincing evidence on either side. According to one story, Stockton accepted General Howe's offer of amnesty, swore allegiance to the king, and went home. Other accounts say that Howe simply pardoned him and then he returned home. The distinction is a big one for Stockton's reputation. If he really accepted amnesty and swore loyalty to King George, he would be considered a traitor to the Patriot cause. If, however... General Howe simply paroled him, he would be like a great many other officers who were honor-bound to remain neutral until exchange for a prisoner of equal rank. The strongest piece of evidence that I have seen that Stockton did not take amnesty is that General Howe submitted a list of nearly 5,000 names to London of those who had accepted amnesty. Stockton's name was not on that list, and Howe noted that no important people had accepted amnesty. Howe certainly would have included and indeed highlighted Stockton's name if he had been on that list. Stockton was also investigated by a New Jersey Committee of Safety about a year later on suspicion of being a Tory. At that time, he affirmed his loyalty to the Patriot cause. If he had received a note of amnesty, he would have had to give it to the committee though he gave them nothing. There's also a case, though, that Stockton did accept amnesty. It begins with a note from a British officer on December 29, 1776, in Amboy, where Stockton had been a prisoner. It says that Howe had granted Stockton a full pardon and that he was entitled to the return of property, including horse and saddle that the Tories had taken from him the British also never made any attempt to exchange Stockton for a British prisoner of equal value, something they almost certainly would have done if he was on parole. However, he was released, Stockton returned to his home in Princeton, where he left all public office. He resigned as a delegate to the Continental Congress. Part of this may have been that he was very sick because of his ill treatment while being held as a prisoner. But even after his health returned, he took up the private practice of law. He died four years later from cancer without revealing fully what he may have done to obtain release from capture. Whatever happened, the capture certainly broke Stockton and ended his career as a patriot leader. Stockton, however, was not the most famous prisoner taken around this time. Even more famously, General Charles Lee was captured by the British Army. At this time, Lee was the third ranking commander in the Continental Army, behind only Washington and Artemis Ward. And since Warren was pretty much out of the picture at this point, living in Boston, and was months away from resigning due to poor health, many were looking at Lee to replace Washington as commander of the Continental Army. Washington had just lost New York and New Jersey. Many felt that he just wasn't up to the job. Lee had far more military experience. Leaders on both sides considered him far and away the best military mind that the Continental Army had. As I discussed last week, ever since the fall of Forts Washington and Lee in November and the capture of thousands of prisoners of war, Washington had been requesting but not ordering General Lee to bring his army down to join with Washington so they could face the British force led by General Cornwallis. Lee kept finding one excuse after another to stay in New York. His correspondence to Washington indicated that his men were unfit to travel and that he would be far better off being in a position to attack the British rear once Cornwallis moved south in pursuit of Washington. Finally, in early December, General Lee crossed into northern New Jersey. Even so, he showed little inclination to join Washington near Philadelphia. Washington continued to send a stream of ever-increasingly desperate and more insistent letters to Lee, hoping that the combined armies could at least mount a defense of Philadelphia, an attack that Washington thought was imminent. Instead. Lee kept insisting that it would be better for him to retain his independent command in North Jersey. His army remained camped for a week with no apparent inclination to join Washington. In truth, Lee seemed to be waiting for Washington's army to be captured, or for Washington himself to make some sort of reckless stand and be killed. At that point, Lee expected to become commander and would rescue America from defeat. He had spent the last few weeks writing letters to undermine Washington to other generals, Continental Congress delegates, and other influential leaders. Given circumstances, many of these men seemed inclined to follow him. On December 12th, an overconfident Lee left his army camped in a frozen field while he tried to get a good night's rest at a nearby inn. He did not take any of his regular aides with him. Instead, he had only a handful of officers, including two French officers. One of them, Virginot, had received a commission as captain from the Continental Army a few months earlier. The other, a French lieutenant colonel named Bertrand, had just gotten a two-year leave from the French Army and had traveled to America in search of a commission. American privateers had seized his ship off the Massachusetts coast. After Boston Patriots learned of his wish to join the Continental Army, they gave him some travel money and told him to go to Philadelphia for a commission. Along the way, Bospotrand met up with Lee. He decided to stay with Lee for now and worry about the paperwork of getting a commission later. Aside from those officers, Lee had only a small guard of about 30 soldiers. That evening, Continental General Horatio Gates sent Major James Wilkinson with a letter to General Washington asking for clarification on how to reach Washington's army. Washington had reached out to both Gates and Lee trying to get reinforcements to defend Philadelphia. For reasons I don't entirely understand, Wilkinson instead went to see General Lee that night and gave the letter meant for Washington to General Lee. According to Wilkinson's memoirs, When he found out Washington had crossed into Pennsylvania and learned that Lee was nearby, he went to Lee instead to get instructions on where Gates's troops should go next. I'm not clear on whether Wilkinson was simply so naive that he didn't realize Washington and Lee were pursuing different strategies, or whether he just decided that Washington was done for and that he wanted to get in good with Lee. One reason to suspect Wilkinson's motives was that he would prove to be quite the weasel later in life. Decades later, he would be in command of the U.S. Army and would be an active participant in the conspiracy that resulted in the trial of Aaron Burr for treason in 1807. General Wilkinson, at that time, saw the conspiracy was about to get exposed and turned on Burr to save himself. But that is a whole different story that is decades away. At this time, Wilkinson was standing in for his boss, General Gates. The two generals, both former officers who served in the British Regular Army, seemed to be highly critical of Washington's leadership and both thought that the cause was probably lost. Since Wilkinson arrived in the middle of the night, Lee told him to get some rest and they would talk more in the morning. When Lee awoke the next morning, He came down to breakfast, still dressed in his nightshirt, and trying to enjoy a leisurely breakfast while he drafted a response for Gates. That draft was highly critical of General Washington. Lee stated that Washington had forced him to move into territory overrun with Tories and that the cause was probably lost. It is telling that Lee noted that the area was thick with Tories since it made his decision to leave his army miles away and stay in an isolated tavern, especially foolhardy. Lee received multiple visitors overnight, so it became public knowledge where he was staying. I don't think it requires the benefit of hindsight to realize that local Tories would discover Lee's position away from the protection of his army and that they would relay that information to the regulars. And that is exactly what happened. A few days earlier, British Lieutenant Colonel William Harcourt volunteered to ride out with the cavalry to gain intelligence on Lee's army. The 24 British dragoons on this mission were rightfully feared. They had a habit of killing people on sight if they suspected them of being rebels. One of the coronets in this force was a young man named Bannister Tarleton, who would gain infamy later in the war for his practice of murdering the wounded on the battlefield and other harsh tactics against local citizenry. Both Harcourt and Tarleton had boasted that they would kill or capture the traitor Lee. Aside from being considered the best officer in the Continental Army, many British regulars took offense at Lee's betrayal of his comrades by joining the rebels. Harcourt's dragoons had actually served under Lee at a battle in Spain during the Seven Years' War. Several conflicting accounts describe how the British tracked down Lee, but it appears to be a combination of tips from Tories as well as intelligence from captured patriots who were threatened with death if they did not reveal Lee's position. Harcourt's dragoons reached White Tavern around 10.30 a.m., They surprised the sentries, who they either killed or chased away. Lee found himself in the tavern with only Wilkinson, a man named Colonel Bradford, and the two French officers. A brief firefight ensued, during which the French Colonel Boisterbrand fled out the back door. The British saw him run, and Tarleton rode him down and forced his surrender. Harcourt then threatened to burn down the tavern with everyone in it unless Lee surrendered. After a few minutes, Lee and Colonel Bradford, who was wounded, walked out the front door. They surrendered and asked to be treated like gentlemen. Virginie and Wilkinson remained in the house, hidden from view. The British dragoons were in a hurry. They knew that continental reinforcements from the main army could arrive any minute and capture all of them. Their target was Lee, who they now had in custody. Lee requested his hat and cloak. Bradford agreed to go back into the house and get them. After going into the house, he put on a servant's hat and cloak and then took Lee's hat and cloak to the front door, put them down, and then scurried back inside. Bradford's hope was that the British would consider him small potatoes and would not want to waste time searching the house to capture him again. He was correct. The British did not bother to search the house, nor do anything else that might lengthen their stay at the tavern. They had Lee, and they still had Boisterbrand as prisoners, on horseback, and decided to race back to British lines, rather than waste time scouring the tavern for a few lesser prisoners. The entire incident at the tavern lasted only about 15 minutes. As soon as the British left, Wilkinson, Bradford, and Virginneau rushed back to the Continental camp with news of Lee's capture. Harcourt's dragoons, along with their prisoners, sped back to Hillsborough, where several companies of regulars would support against any rescue party. The troop had to fight its way through a few sentry points, but made it safely back to British lines with their prisoners. The British initially held Lee under close guard. Lee demanded to write General Howe. When he did write a letter, Howe returned it to him unopened and addressed to Lieutenant Colonel Lee. By using Lee's British rank, Howe was implying that he was a deserter and that he could be hanged as such. Howe wrote a letter to London to confirm whether or not Lee had properly resigned his commission and whether he should be treated as a deserter. In the meantime, he held Lee under heavy guard and refused to offer him parole. Harcourt, the officer who had captured Lee, returned to England, where over the next few years he would become an earl after his older brother died childless. He would also become an aide-de-camp to the king and received a promotion to Major General before the end of the war. After the war, he would also receive a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath and become one of the very few British officers ever to rise to the rank of field marshal. The guy I feel sorriest for in this whole story is Colonel Bertrand. Since the French officer had not yet received his Continental Commission before being captured, the British did not recognize him as a prisoner of war. They held him in a New York prison for a time Then shipped him back to London. He sat in prison for a couple of years before finally escaping in 1778 and returning to France. There he found that the French government had taken away his commission for overstaying his two year leave, never mind that he was a prisoner and could not return. Neither the Americans nor the French offered him another commission. He never served again, and I'm just not sure what finally happened to him. The big story, though, for everybody at the time was General Lee. For many on both sides, Lee's capture was considered more important than the capture of the 3,000 Continentals at Fort Washington. Many thought that Lee really was the only hope for the Continental Army. With his capture, Washington would never be able to lead the Army to victory. Some top British officers Predicted that his capture would soon result in a complete surrender of the Continental Army and an end to the rebellion. Washington himself seemed devastated by the loss. Despite Lee's insubordination, Washington shared the consensus view that Lee was one of the Army's most valuable leaders. In hindsight, of course, that capture was probably a miracle. Lee's capture ended any talk of him replacing Washington. It also meant that General Sullivan now took control of the army that had been under Lee's command. Sullivan began moving the troops to Philadelphia as Washington had requested for quite some time. Although it felt like a loss, Lee's capture actually marked the beginning of a turnaround for Washington and the Continentals. General Washington continued to soldier on, still trying to consolidate his forces and make plans to confront the enemy. He did not display any public evidence of defeatism in his correspondence with officers or Congress. But on December 18th, he did confide in a letter to his brother Samuel that with enlistments coming to an end, he might not have an army to continue the war. Quote, I have no doubt but that General Howe will still make an attempt upon Philadelphia this winter. I see nothing to oppose him in a fortnight from this time. In a word, my dear sir, if every nerve is not strained to recruit the new army with all possible expedition, I think the game is pretty near up. End quote. Washington was fortunate in that his prediction was wrong, the British had no intention of attempting to take Philadelphia that winter. It seems like it would have been a relatively easy thing to do given the condition of the defenses. The ever-cautious Howe, though, decided to consolidate his gains for the year. He returned to New York City with most of his army settling into a comfortable winter quarters in and around New York. Howe left a series of outposts through New Jersey to secure the colony and continue taking oaths of allegiance from the local citizenry. He still held out hope that Washington's army might dissolve away over the winter and prevent any need for another bloody battle. Whatever the justification, the Continentals seemed pleasantly shocked that the British would once again pull back rather than capture Philadelphia. Many British officers were appalled at Howe's orders. Letters back to London indicate a flood of frustration that Howe never seemed to want to let his army finish off the Americans so that they could go home. As commander, though, Howe had the final word and put his army into winter quarters, expecting an end to fighting for the year. Next week, I'm going to step away from New Jersey to cover two other events that happened during this same time. There was a Patriot attempt to capture Fort Cumberland in Nova Scotia. Also, the British captured Newport, Rhode Island, to use as a winter port for the Navy. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. As a special deal for our listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first order. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. This week I want to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg, who runs Colonial Theater on the air. His site is colonialradio.com. Just as a reminder, anyone can join Patreon to help support this podcast for as little as $2 a month. The Robert Morris Circle is the highest level named for the financier of the revolution. Mark's site, Colonial Theater, produces audio works on a wide variety of topics. Comedies, dramas, sci-fi. My favorites, of course, are the historical fiction. I've mentioned the show Ticonderoga, which is set in the French and Indian War. The story takes place during the same events that I covered in the first few episodes of this podcast. If you give it a listen, you will find yourself following the adventures of Militia Captain William Taylor and his Mohawk scout, Dagadawita. They fall in with Captain Carlton Campbell of the 42nd Highlanders and a young orphan named Adam Cobbs. Together, the group faces a series of trials as they make their way through the course of the French and Indian War. It really is a great story, and it's available on Audible or Apple Music or you can go old school and buy the CDs on Amazon. You can learn about any of these options on the site colonialradio.com. You can also find a link to this and other Patreon supporters on my website amrevpodcast.com. This week's episode focused on two of the most prominent of many prisoners captured during the New Jersey Offensive of 1776. Richard Stockton, was a member of the Continental Congress, a signer of the Declaration, and yet he thinks it would be safe to stay with a friend behind enemy lines surrounded by loyalists and no one is going to bother him. Then you have a guy like Charles Lee. He's an experienced combat officer, and yet he leaves his army miles away while he sleeps in a tavern only a few miles from the enemy. By the way, in case you were wondering, Charles Lee is no relation to the prominent Lee family of Virginia. Men I've mentioned in other episodes, like Richard Henry Lee, Arthur Lee, or Light Horse Harry Lee, who is the father of future Confederate General Robert E. Lee, are all related to each other. But none of these guys are really any relation to Charles. Charles Lee had been a regular officer from Britain who had only recently settled in Virginia before the war. He is probably one of the most arrogant men in the Revolution, and with the Revolution full of competing egos, that's saying something. During the French and Indian War, he married the daughter of a Seneca chief and had two children with her. We don't know her name or the children's name because Lee never bothered to mention them in any of his writings. Presumably, he abandoned them when he was transferred back to Europe in the middle of the Seven Years' War. When he returned to America years later, He showed zero interest in finding his family and lived on his own. When he died, he left his estate to his sister and said nothing about his wife and children. Quite the deadbeat dad. During the time he lived with the tribe, they nicknamed him Boiling Water due to his violent temper. Despite any lack of any real success in battle, both sides considered Lee the best general in the Continental Army. It seems pretty clear that Lee thought that about himself as well. As we will see in later episodes, he comes nowhere near to living up to that reputation. Still, he is an interesting character. If you want to read more about him, this week's book recommendation is Charles Lee, Self Before Country by Dominic Mazzagetti. It's a relatively short book at just over 200 pages, counting appendix dots and index, one of the appendices is Wilkinson's account of Lee's capture in 1776. So that in and of itself is pretty interesting. The author Mazagetti is a New Jersey lawyer who has also been involved in state politics. He's written several other books in his spare time, but no others from the Revolutionary War era. He published his book on Lee in 2013. For my online recommendation this week, I want to mention a Facebook group for anyone who is still on Facebook American History Fanatics. It's a good place to chat with a few thousand other people who are interested in American history. I'm one of the group admins, although I really don't do much administering there. Uh, I do participate, though, and there are lots of good discussions, and the other admins keep it pretty clear of debates over modern politics. So, if you're still on Facebook and you enjoy talking about historical events, check out American History Fanatics. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run? For a second non-consecutive term. These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.